This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name is Owen. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it's great to have you with us. If you're here just visiting um, uh, with Matt and Megan, then you're so welcome. If you're here for the first time and you're thinking about whether this is a church for you, you're so welcome as well. Now, I'm doing a box set series on seeing Christ in everyday life. Um, now, m- many of us, I hope, well, I'm, 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 I'm imagining that most of us can say hand on heart that we've not met Jesus Christ in the flesh. Yeah? But hundreds of millions, nay, thousands of millions of people, including me, believe that they have experienced Jesus through their senses. Maybe some of you would say the same thing. That you've experienced something of Christ Jesus in a way that was personal to you that you can explain to yourself but would find it hard to explain to someone else, right? But nobody in this room has probably experienced Jesus Christ in the flesh. So when we uh, think about Jesus Christ speaking to us and having these sensory emotional experiences of Jesus. Um, Sometimes we can be left thinking, what's the biblical basis for that? Is there a biblical basis for it? And in this series of talks that we've been doing, um, we've been trying to explore what the basis for our experiences of Christ Jesus in everyday life is and how we can validate that by what we read in the Bible. Now, one of the most common ways that people experience Christ Jesus appears to be through nature. How many of you can relate to that, right? If not, you personally, you've heard someone say to you, do you know what? You go to church, but I experience God most in nature. Just go out for a walk in the countryside and feel really close to God. And maybe you feel like that yourself. Certainly for me, that's my experience. And, uh, you know, it's this experience of perhaps wandering through a glade of trees and feel the warmth of sun on your face. You know, it's a hard thing to do at this time of year. Um, or perhaps standing on the beach and feeling the, the, the salty spray on the air on your lips and on your, on your face and you can almost taste it. You know, moments like this can actually be quite a spiritual experience, can't they? They can be deeply emotional. They can affect us in positive ways. Um, these last few nights um, have been particularly clear, as you probably know. And uh, I walk to the garage uh, occasionally um, when my daughter asked me to to go and feed her guinea pigs. Anyone have ever had that experience? Yeah? Wandering into the garage to feed the guinea pigs. And um, anyway, I was looking up at the stars and I was just struck by uh, a deep thought of... I was just reminded of how far the photons of light have traveled from even the nearest star to literally impact the retina on my eye and stimulate some thought in my brain. It's just, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Just the depth of emotional impact that just something as simple, well not as simple, but something as, as practical as that light hitting our retinas on our eyes. It's just phenomenal how the natural world impacts our bodies and our minds. Um, I sensed that night as I was looking at the stars, um, if you like, I sensed the cosmic presence of Christ Jesus, the one whom Psalm 147 verse 4 says, Christ Jesus, the Lord determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. You know, I wonder sometimes if we can become so familiar with the physical person of Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus Christ, that we, we, we actually find it hard to connect with the post-resurrection, the post-ascension Christ Jesus. I wonder if, that, if you can get your head around that. I wonder if you can start to imagine what does it actually look like to interact with the post-resurrection, post-ascension Christ Jesus. Um, 
The Apostle Peter, in his famous speech in Acts 2.36, um, after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to heaven, says this in Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that word Lord in the original Greek is kurios, uh, which means someone who wields ultimate authority. Um, whilst uh, Peter's experience of the universe perhaps was less uh, knowledgeable than ours in the, with the advent of, of science and, and cosmology, um, the, the fact is, is that Peter was describing the resurrected Christ as the ultimate cosmic authority. So I wonder whether for you, you would recognise that you've had an encounter with Christ Jesus through nature. Maybe it was out when you were walking your dog. Maybe it was on your last uh, climb of a mountain. Maybe it was when you gazed at a sunset from the same spot you always gaze at that sunset. Maybe you've encountered Christ Jesus through nature. Well, I want to reassure you that you're not being unbiblical. And for those of you who might think, why on earth would I worry about that? There are some people that worry about that, okay? There are some people that worry that thinking that they can encounter God in nature would be unbiblical. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, let me just give you a few scriptures just to describe that. Psalm 148 encourages praise and honour from all of creation and even uh, the song, one of the songs that Kevin and Dave led this morning showed us that. Praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights above, praise him his angels, praise him his heavenly hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, all small creatures and flying birds. Just, just beautiful poetry. Poetry speaking of the way in which all of creation praises God. Check out Psalm 98 and Psalm 104 as well. And we're going to be using 104 as our contemplation this morning. Also, though, in the Bible, we see in Job um, 12, verses 7 to 10, that Job reminds his friends that all of creation knows who the Lord is. All of creation knows who the Lord is. I'm just going to read this to you. But ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all humankind. In Job 38 and 39, you can look at this afterwards, Job reminds his friends that we human beings are part of a bigger ecosystem, a bigger biosphere. We are ju not just the centre of it. And don't we, don't we know that in, the, in an era of climate change? and environmental degradation. So Job 38, verses 34 to 38, says this. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of heaven when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? The Jews... The Jews were in no doubt that, that every ecosystem of this miraculous planet that we live on, the whole cosmos that we live within, reveals the wisdom of God. 
That was fundamental to their belief. And today, with more scientific insight, we might say that for the last 13.8 billion years, the glorious radiance of Christ Jesus has been glowing and expanding as the universe has expanded, reflecting the glory of God and revealing more to us of God than we could possibly understand with our limited neural capacities, which, by the way, mine are probably the least of it. I'm sure some of you can enjoy uh, the glory of God even more than I can because of your neural capacity. But such is the complexity and the enormity of the planet that we live on, let alone the solar system and the galaxies and the universe that we live in. Such is the complexity and the enormity. It would appear that there is no end to how much of Christ Jesus we can discover revealed to us by divine creation. The Victorian poet from County Durham, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, said in her novel, Aurora Lee, the earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only she who takes off her shoes can see it. Sorry, let me say that again, but only she who sees takes off her shoes. I don't think the Bible suggests that the earth is God but rather the earth reveals God. The universe reveals the nature of God and a universe lovingly created by God. And I want just you to consider this, that think of a work of art, a sculpture, a painting, you know, an incredible piece of architecture. Just think of a, a wonderful piece of music. And we often talk, don't we, of how the, the, uh, the creator of that piece of art puts something of themselves into it. They put themselves into it. And in the same way, we see God putting themselves into creation. We all know of Banksy, of course, uh, but we don't know who Banksy is, do we? But what we know of Banksy, we know from the artwork that he creates. We know that Banksy is most likely humorous, playful, anarchic, daring, and hopeful. Yeah, you recognize that. You recognize that from the art that he creates or she creates. We don't know who they are but we can know something of them from their art. And in the same way, the incredible beauty and diversity of the universe, cosmic through subatomic sub inspires awe and reveals so much to us of its divine source. That God created this work of art that we call the universe was foundational to the beliefs of the Jews. And you'll be familiar, no doubt, with the origin story in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, there's this incredible description of the origins of the heaven and the earth. And now, listen, I'll be honest, some of it sounds strange, doesn't it? But this is because this tradition that we're reading here is ancient, like 3,000 years old ancient. You know, if you really want to understand the Bible in its context, go and read literature from 3,000 years ago, and you'll see that the Bible actually looks remarkably familiar compared to some of the stuff you'll read. The truth, though, is, is that not all of it makes sense to us. Not all of it fits our scientific understanding of the way in which the universe operates. But let me summarize it for you. Day one, it says God creates light and separates it from darkness and creates day and night. Day two, God creates sky and rain and snow and hail and rivers and seas. Day three, God creates land and vegetation in their myriad forms. And day four, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. Five, God creates the birds and the sea creatures. Day six, God creates the wild animals and livestock, which should tell us something, by the way, of the perspective of the person that wrote this, um, as well as human beings. It is a beautiful retrospective story that reveals something of the author's experience. If we tried to write that story now, we'd probably talk about, I'd probably get um, Cox, 
Brian Cox, so Brian Cox, I probably, have you seen his um, TV series on the universe and how the universe was created? You should watch it, it's amazing. It would get him to describe it. In the beginning, there was a big bang and there was hydrogen and carbon and helium and oxygen. You know, we'd get a great creation story and that's what we're reading here. We're reading an amazing creation story that tells us something of the author's experience. But through this story, the Jewish authors were communicating some really fundamental beliefs that they had about God. And that's what we should notice in this story. Things like the principle that they believe God created the universe out of nothing. That might seem obvious to us today, but the reality back then it wasn't. It wasn't. The universe, in some origin stories, was created from this being torn into two pieces. Uh, this, this enemy of this God torn and destroyed into, and the, the God, this God used their body to create the universe. That's, that's not the point of the story of the Jewish Genesis account. Actually, it's, they believe that God created the universe out of nothing. They believe that God existed before the universe was created. That God created every detail of the universe. That God made humankind in the likeness of God. Again, a very profound and radical idea at the time. And the idea that human beings are stewards of all that God has created. I think the Jews are the original environmentalists. Like we are stewards of this planet that we live on. We're not, we don't have the right just to exploit it um, in, in the way that we are at the moment. We're stewards. These were fundamental beliefs that the Jews believed and have found their way into our culture because of Christianity. One phrase that stands out though in this Genesis account and is repeated seven times is this phrase. God saw that it was good. It's repeated in Genesis 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31. That's quite repetitive. And that should tell us something about this deep belief that creation and the universe that we live in is good. This Jewish origin story is telling us that they believe that God created the universe and thought he'd done quite a good job. God created this universe and was pleased with the creation. That's really fundamental to the Jews. Now, of course, we may not have done a great job of looking after this planet, of taking responsibility for this planet, and God knows what we're going to do when we get off this planet and start mining the moon and other planets for their resources. But that does not mean that God does not love and care for this planet. And this was a foundational belief for the Jews. And let's not forget Jesus was a Jew. This was fundamental to Jesus' beliefs as well. And so that explains some of Jesus's uh, rather esoteric comments when he said this, he said in Luke 12, 24, he said, consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And Luke 12, 27, consider how the wild flowers grow, they do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Solomon being a reference to one of their former kings, the most glorious king in Jewish history. So wherever Jesus looked in nature, he saw ecosystems around him as intrinsically good. Um, and, and that was fundamentally Jewish, and it was foundational to that understanding. And what's more, Jesus believed that God did not limit his care just to human beings. And for that matter, he didn't just limit his care to certain human beings of a certain religion or ethnic origin. Okay, the Genesis story is that God cared for all of humanity and all of creation, all of the universe. And, uh, um, and, and so, so when we think about a God who loves and cares for everything, 
and we reflect on our behaviour. How can we imagine a God who loves and cares for us without loving and caring for every human being? Just reflect on that question for a minute. How can you imagine a God who loves and cares for us, who does not love and care for every human being? There's no room for racism and nationalism in the Christian gospel. There is no room for it. There's no room for religiosity. God just doesn't just love the Christians. God doesn't just love the Jews. God loves every person. There's no room for it. How can we imagine a God who loves and cares for us all without loving and caring for livestock, wild animals, vegetation, sun, moon and stars? How can we imagine a God who doesn't care about those things? And friends, this really should impact on our, if you, you know, if you care about this, this idea of having faith in God and trusting in this person that you call God, then, then we have a responsibility to care for the things that God cares about. Every single person who's ever lived. Every part of our universe, we have a responsibility to love and care for it in the same way that God does. 1 John 4, 19, 21, I'm bouncing around here, but there's this great phrase, we love because God first loved us. Have you ever thought about that before? You love because you are loved. And don't you know that's true? The more loved we are, the greater our capacity to love. That's a Jewish thought. It's a Judeo-Christian thought. I say Jewish thought because John was a Jew as well. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love yet, sorry, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. This is not me saying this, this is John. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You see, love is not conditional on the object or the subject of the love. Love by its very nature is unconditional. It does not discriminate because it comes from the person. Now, I know it's hard to believe, um, but I do not always behave in a way that elicits love from my wife. Uh, I I'm, I'm really don't. There are times, my daughter will tell you, um, when I am very unlovable okay, as a person and I make it hard for my family to love me. Um, but talking to my dear wife, Claire, she loves me nonetheless, even when I'm not being very lovable. And that's because she is a very loving person. She's well-loved as a person. She has always believed that God loves her. Her love for other people is born of the great love that's been poured out into her. And she's very lovable. And she is very loving towards me even when I'm not lovable because of the love that exists within her. Now, Here's the thing, we either love everything or there's a reason to doubt that we love anything. We either love everything or there's a reason to doubt we love anything. And the reason I can say that is because love is unconditional. It does not depend on the subject or the object of our love. It depends on the love that pours out of us. And there's, if you want to look at it from a biblical perspective, we love because God first loved us. God is love. You and I are made in the image of God. You are love. Love, you know, to avoid cliches, is what makes the world go around. Love is the only thing that we really care about. Love is the only thing that we think about on our deathbed. Like, love, nothing else. You and I are love because God loves us. 
And, and that's, the, that's the Jewish idea, the, Jewish, the radical Jewish idea that's at the heart of the gospel. And I want to say to you that just like the nature of love is to be unconditional, so what we consider to be sacred and secular is the same. In our culture, there's this division where we, where, where we think of something as sacred, i.e. connected to God, and something that's secular that is not connected to God. Now, let me just say, that's a very a Western Greek idea, okay? Um, it, we get it from ancient Greece. It's flowed through into our, into our um, current culture, but we have this idea of sacred and secular. But that's not a Jewish idea. The world of Jesus was that everything is sacred. Why? Because it's a closed system. The universe is created by God. It's a closed system. Therefore, everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. So, to Jews like Jesus, the division between sacred and secular was a false division. Everything is sacred to God. So, whether we're gazing at the intricate patterns on a leaf, have you ever done that? Or it's just me? <laughs> you pick up a leaf and you're just gazing. Wow, look at that. Look at the pattern on that, it's just incredible. Whether you're gazing at the stars and thinking about the photons that have traveled light years to impact the retina on your eye and to stimulate an emotion in your body. Or whether you're staring at the, uh, the sun setting and trying to avoid getting a blown out retina, but nevertheless being touched by the incredible colors of red and orange and yellows that just kind of fill the sky when the sun is setting. Or whether you're watching the raindrops just fall onto the ground outside the window. Or whether you're just, you know, you're going across the Severn Bridge and you just look at the vastness of the water and just the sheer breadth of the ocean as it spreads out in the Bristol Channel. Everything is sacred. That's why we can experience God wherever we look. Wherever we look, we will, we will see God. Now, it's not to say that that is God, but it reflects the glory of God. So, if the earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God, can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see God in everything that goes on? Even in your, in, in your own creation. Look at your body. Look, just look at your hand for a minute. I'm a physiotherapist. Your hand is incredible. Just move your thumb. How did you do that? Just think about the tendons and the reflexes that are required to do that. Just look at, just look at the way in which the skin stretches and then, then recovers. And for some of us, it's more wrinkly than others. Just look at the way your nail grows, even when you smash it. Who smashed their nail? Jammed their nails in a door. And it goes black, doesn't it? And what happens? The nail eventually falls off and you get another one growing back. Isn't that incredible? Friends, we need to rediscover the awesomeness of the world in which we live. And far from taking us away from God, it will lead us right to God. So I'm going to invite you just to ask God to reveal himself to you through the natural world in which we live. It's entirely biblical to do so, for those of you that care about that. It's entirely rational to do so, and it's entirely life-giving to do that. Now, we're going to put on a four-minute uh, video, which has got no sound. It's all visual. Okay, and we're going to, it's going to play through Psalm 104, and you can see some beautiful images. And I just want to encourage you, just say, God, if, if you are real God, if you are serious, then just 
start to reveal yourself to me in this, in this time. It's gonna be a four minute contemplation. It's gonna be a discipline for us. You've already been disciplined listening to me for 25 minutes. You can have four more minutes of listening, uh, sorry, of, of, of looking at the screen and seeing these incredible images and allow God to reveal himself to you. Um, I would encourage you normally when we contemplate to close your eyes, but you can't do that in this case. You've got to look at the screens because there's nothing to listen to. It's just the images. Let's do that. Let's just briefly pray. Holy Spirit, and for those of you who might be confused by that, Christ Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, in the names of the Trinity, we honour you and we thank you for your creative power and all that you have made and sustain. And as we stand here now and as we sit here now, may the reality of who you are in the incredible way that you are reflected in your creation, may we discover more of you and feel closer to you than ever before and filled with your love, reassured by your presence, safe in the knowledge of your love and your care for us and for every human being and for every part of your creation. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.